Hello and welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast. Today is a special podcast uh, as we are coming into the first days of December where we are joined by the greatest minds that Sports Loft has to offer to discuss the predictions from 2023, see how we fared and then look forward to 2024 and the future of what the sports industry holds. So I'm very excited to welcome my regular guests and co-hosts, Charlie Greenwood, the CEO and founder of Sportsloft. Charlie, welcome back to the Sportsloft podcast. Morning, Yanni. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. Just off the heels of an excellent basketball practice. Uh, felt like Michael Jordan in the 91 finals. Uh, and also joined by head of strategy, Andy. Andy, welcome back to the Sportsloft podcast. I should say Andy Selby, but complete, complete your full name. <laughs> Thank you, Yanni. I fully, fully, fully enjoyed watching your basketball training video from earlier. So. <laughs> I subjected, I subjected the boys to uh, uh, to some uh, uh, some videos of me looking tremendously unathletic, but uh, it's all in good fun. Speaking of being unathletic, um, let's turn our attentions to, as we always do, the favorite sporting moments of the week. And I will start. I uh, I feel particularly strongly about this one. My favorite sporting moment of the week has been the response to the NBA in-season tournament and how that has gone down uh, with uh, not just basketball fans, but fans of uh, the industry in general. There are certainly tweaks that could potentially be made to the format and to the storytelling, um, but I think they absolutely nailed it with the courts. I think they nailed it with getting some real intensity into the uh, into games in October and November, which uh, which uh, historically there you know there haven't necessarily been. And uh, some great lineups, some fantastic matchups, uh, and some great talking points, like uh, running up the score in big blowouts in order to have bigger point differential, um, all of which is really positive. And I will not be surprised to see, you know, a big increase in the media revenues and sponsorship revenues for the NBA as they sell the NBA Cup and everything to do with the tournament. That's been my favorite moment. No doubt we shall now be hearing about Wolverhampton and Hull. So, Charlie, what's your favourite? No, so, actually, just going on the NBA one, I, um, having been to the NBA Summer League last year, where doing an event in Las Vegas in the summer is uh, brutally hot, actually to see them doing Vegas in the winter sounded like a much more pleasant experience all around. And uh, I'm really pleased, because uh, there was a lot of discussion, actually, at Summer League about uh, the tournament um in-season tournament and i'm really pleased to have seen the the success of it because i think there's uh, a lot of people put a lot of hard work into that so i'm really see, pleased to see it come to fruition absolutely i mean but that wasn't my sporting moment of the week no i i anticipated not <laughs> no uh my sporting moment of the week was not wolves because i went to wolves fulham on monday night and i'm still upset about var um my sporting moment of the week actually was i was at the uh, sports pro um, event in Madrid and very fortuitously got to go to the Champions League um, game between uh, Real Madrid and uh, Napoli at the Bernabeu which and the stadium isn't still finished but it looks amazing but the sporting moment of the week is just how good Jude Bellingham is oh. it's the second time I've seen him play in the flesh and he is phenomenally good so that was my sporting moment of the week just watching Bellingham. Speaking of, uh, as the, as this is a prediction podcast, are you going out on a limb now to say that England are going to win the 2024 Euros? No. 
Uh, I would never <laughs> that would just be daft. I will, however, say that if he carries on like that, and he's what 20, 21? It's insane. It's insane. He could, if he's a, he could easily be at Madrid for another 10, 15 years, and he could be an absolute Madrid legend. Um, mm. He, he was just phenomenally good. It's uh, it's 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 lovely to see. Andy, you were going to say something about Bellingham. Yeah, I was going to say uh, I've seen Duke Bellingham get absolutely played out the game by Hull City, but to be <laughs> fair to him, he was 16 years old at the time. So you know, I like to think that contributed towards his education to become the player he is today. <laughs> I was, I couldn't imagine how you were going to swing Bellingham performing incredibly to Hull City, but bravo to you, sir. Right, what's what's your favourite moment of the week? Uh, I'm banned from talking about Hull City, even though I've already mentioned them, but they did get a good 4-1 win against Rotherham. I think every time I've been on the Sportsloft podcast now, they've won in the build-up, so particularly as we get towards the playoff run, um, I want to make sure that we're we're keeping that going. Um, now, if you'll forgive me, my sporting moment, I'm going to reach back two weeks. Before I was allegianced to Hull City, growing up, the local team that I sported was Scarborough. Um, when I was 10 years old, I saw them reach the fourth round of the FA Cup and play Chelsea the year that they got all the money. So very much one of my formative footballing memories and made me fall in love with the game. Um, they reached the FA Cup first round for the first time in 20 years and got a good one-all draw against Forest Green, albeit conceded in the 90th minute for it to go to a replay. So um, my brother decided that for my birthday, a good birthday present would be to go to Forest Green on a very cold Tuesday night. So we've got the... <laughs> Two hour plus train in the direction of roughly Swindon. Um, it's actually Stroud where they play. And was quite an incredible sporting moment in that there were so many Scarborough fans that made the trip. There were more Scarborough fans than there were Forest Green fans. They had to delay kickoff so that we could all get into the ground. And then as a reward for such an incredible following, Scarborough proceeded to concede four within the first 30 minutes or so and lose 5-2. So... <laughs> Magic of the cup. <laughs> interesting, interesting choice for favorite moment then, but uh, it's uh, fun, fun to experience. Right. Shall we move on to our predictions? And what we're going to do is we are going to test ourselves to review last year's predictions uh, and then make some going forwards. So uh, for listeners, you will also be able to see some of this on the newsletter that's going to come out, but we'll start Going through each of the predictions, I'll read a little bit of a snippet and then we'll have a we'll have a chat around it. So, the first one, sports will get smarter on data. And this is a quote, every brand interested in sports sponsorship has seen their fair share of hand-picked rosy metrics and sales decks. Guilty. <laughs> but sponsors are getting smarter in interrogating the performance of their partnership assets, particularly as many activations are digital and therefore more easily measurable. We expect to see more demand for these analytics tools in the year ahead. How did we fare on that one, Charlie? So am I going for, I'm going first on this one then. Okay, fair enough. Um, I think this is actually going to be similar to quite a few of the other trends in that it's not as if we're going to be able to say, yes, in 2023, this was completed. I think we're going to be able to say that it was a ongoing trend. And I think we saw greater sophistication um, around data and uh, brands and other partners interpreting and sorry, um, interrogating the data even more. But I certainly wouldn't say that we've got to a level of you know absolute sophistication across the industry and everybody being really, really good at it. 
Uh, I think there's definite an, an element where you can see that people are continuing to talk about the value of first-party data, etc. I don't think you can go to a conference now without everybody talking at some point about the value of first-party data. But I do think what we're going to start to see is more around the data enrichment. So it's not just the idea of, hey, I'm collecting first-party data. It's actually like, okay, what have you got? How much have you got? How are you using it? And I think that is going to be um, increasingly important uh, going forward. So actually being able to get genuine depth around the data that's being collected. Because we've seen a lot, haven't we? And and, and companies have even um, popped up around this, around uh, being able to measure the value of the digital footprint, being able to try to monetize and become affiliate marketers for uh, direct to fan, um, uh, direct to fan attributions. And you know, we talked a lot um, last time about Spotify and Barcelona, uh, where the deal was still relatively raw when we did the predictions podcast last year, and how Spotify had said that actually the value of the data that Barcelona actually held was significantly less than what they thought, which impacted the 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 price at the end. Andy, what what have what have you kind of seen and experienced and heard about the success of that particular deal? Um, aside from kind of the the, the really cool uh, visual and big moves that they do, such as the Rolling Stones taking over the 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 jersey uh, the, the the front of jersey for FC Barcelona for the launch of their um, Hackney Diamonds album and stuff like that, but like in terms of the actual usage of data and um, uh, monetization from a sponsorship perspective. Yeah, I was about to say, I think my answer was going to be very, very cool partnership activations is is the main thing that I've taken from the Barcelona Spotify deal. Mm. Um, I think that specifically is probably not one I've been super close to, but um, I think what's been interesting for me on this space is like when I wrote this, it was very much with a partnership's mindset in mind. And I think maybe historically, if you're thinking of the fan funnel and the numbers that would be in those sales decks, it was very driven towards Nielsen follower numbers, social media following, and those kind of big numbers at the front. And I actually think, you know, the registered number of emails, which to be honest, probably wasn't even making it into a lot of decks. I've been surprised why actually it's often not been, you know, a data lead that's coming to us and asking these questions, but it's actually now increasingly more and more the partnerships team and the partnerships team are saying, we're interested in technologies that give us an edge in terms of that data enrichment you know, the insights that we can therefore provide to partners off the back of it, and also the personalization. If you listen to the Covatic podcast we did a few weeks ago, months ago, um, they're able to do some really cool stuff around personalization and, and insights that would be tricky to get otherwise. And I think stuff like that can be a real unique edge when you're going into a, a brand and they've got 10 clubs and God knows what else pitching them all with some pretty similar stuff. I was going to say, I think the thing with the... Um the Barcelona Spotify one is actually that was about 14 months ago and it's still the one that everybody trots out on all the occasions to talk about of the instance of you know somebody looking at the data and saying actually it's changing the valuation I think that's largely because it's the one that was publicly talked about it's not to say that those are that's not happening on time and time again now and actually isn't becoming much more part of um, the way that people are actually looking at the sponsorship so Andy was talking before then about the you know, previously people talked about equivalent media value on a on a sponsorship deck, and then maybe the number of fans we have, and everybody knows like the hugely inflated numbers that you see on all of these decks. Well, we got X billion fans, etc. I think where it starts to get really interesting though is actually when people start to look at the value of 
real depth of understanding. So then you get into, okay, how many emails do we actually have? But of those emails, how many actual data points do we have on each particular person? And I think as you start to see changing from a quantity um, conversation to a quality conversation, that's where I think actually a lot of the value comes in. And I think when looking back at the the article that uh, we did last year about the trends, there was a comment in there about the value of family databases actually being regularly listed on Teams balance sheets. Now, I don't think we've got to the point of those being regularly listed on team balance sheets, but I do think people are starting to actually get to the point of saying that there is a genuine economic value about the data that, that they're holding, which is a combination of the quality and the quantity uh, of the data. And I think people are starting to realise that that's, even if you don't necessarily list it on the balance sheet, you can drive a lot of inc- uh, value in other areas as a result of having that data. And I think that's important. Mm. Yeah, and just building on that, one of the things that we touch on in the trends look into next year is think sports is uniquely able to get some of this information. So in terms of enrichment, we're talking not just, here's my phone number and email address, it's, you know, which car brands are you interested in? You know, Instagram handle, Twitter, Spotify even, like that level of information, which, you know, if I'm not willing to share with, my football club i'm probably not going to share it with anyone like the it's the first brand that either i'm willing to share stuff with but also they can incentivize me to do that right like sports organizations can offer incentives for sharing information that a brand is always going to struggle to to achieve and be as trusted Mm. and there's also there's also an element isn't there is that the 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 sports clubs um are uniquely positioned to be able to um, not just collect the data, but understand the behavior and understand what drives the fandom of every individual fan, right? Because the way that I express my fandom is different than the way that you express yours, Andy, is different than the way that you express, that Ch- Charlie, you, you do yours. I, I may be buying kits for my kids. Uh, you are going to Forest Green near uh, near Slough uh, to, to, to go watch Scarborough. Um, and Charlie's, you know, buying uh, actual uh, actual football boots for his kids who play, right? Um, and the, the, the driver that a club can be to all of those behaviors, to understand them, but then also drive them and, uh, and provide value to sponsors or just, you know, affiliates is, uh, is incredible. Um, and I, it feels like we're starting to get to a tipping point where organizations are getting their heads around that but also struggling to shift the business model because that means that like the, 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 the pitch in that scenario is you stand to make more money by being a super affiliate, for example, than by selling a sponsorship in a specific category, but you have to forego the sponsorship money in order to do that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think as teams get to know their fans really well, and I mean really get to know them well, not just did I buy a ticket to a game, but do I buy kits for my kids, who's my favorite player, what content do I like? Uh, you know, what phone do I use? Hmm. They start to become a much more genuine marketing tool for partners. But I think, though, the closest example of that super affiliate model that you mentioned, Yanni, isn't necessarily in the sports industry. But as often, it's things like travel, which I think is a, a very, very advanced industry when it comes to data. Mm-hmm. So, British Airways. I, the emails that I get from British Airways of uh, 
buy all your Christmas shopping starting through British Airways and you click through and you can get more Avios points because you bought something from one of their affiliate stores. If you could do that as an Arsenal fan and you maybe got Arsenal points because you clicked through and then you bought an Adidas pair of boots for your kids, that's a very nice and straight link between the club and the sponsor. Mm-hmm. I think the hard part is the leap of faith required on the behalf of the commercial director to go to the CEO and say, hey, you know that 15 million sponsorship, right? We're all good. We'll turn it down. But we think we can get a higher upside when it's not proven. The moment that somebody actually does it and it works and they, they turn down the 15, but they got 25, everybody's going to be there like a shot. But at the moment, nobody's going to turn it down. And so you almost need that challenger type uh, rights holder that's new rights holder who can't get the the big sponsorship up front so goes yeah okay fine we'll do it and that proves the point it's tough at the team level because the financial planning that goes to squad building and everything else like expected commercial revenue is part of that so if you know that you've got you know pretty certain 15 million coming in for a deal then you know you're not just thinking of it from the commercial side, but you're probably thinking of it going to the football side and being like, look, this thing's a potential guaranteed 15 million, but we want to chance it on something else. It's like... Absolutely. So we'll give ourselves a seven and a half out of 10 on that one. Let's move on to the next one, which is uh, that we are a content business will become a reality. Uh, And again, from the prediction newsletter last year, with a media industry in a state of flux, 2023 will be the year that we'll see what being a content business actually means for how sports organizations operate and which ones are really successful at it. Being a content business will require both a consistent volume and quality of output. So, Andy, have sports organizations become content businesses? I mean, I like to think they always were, but the, the, the spirit of this <laughs> prediction has been, and you know, we saw this accelerate a lot during COVID is historically, particularly maybe slightly further down, you know, the pyramid of sports, everything was very geared around the match. And so you might have match highlights that come out, pre-match interview, post-match interview, very match geared. And what we saw during COVID is because there were no matches being played, suddenly there was lots of content that needed to be created around that. Again, I'll, I'll work Hull City into every answer I'm determined. Like, Hull City's content output around here is just daily life at the club. And this is a mid-table championship club, right? Like, the extent to which they're leading into that, the fact that Leeds, who are again in the championship, have a, a pre-match live show now. I almost think, like, the justification for this case has been further down the pyramid where there's content being created all week long. And I actually think that's the type of content where teams and leagues are uniquely placed because only they can get access to that, right? Unless they're inviting people in and doing an Amazon documentary type stuff. That this is the daily life of being an athlete is is content that people are interested in. And you know, there's a prediction that we'll likely include for next year is where we're talking about the power of personalities. I touch on in that how this, you know player interviews can be quite dull and they're very media trained and stuff. But actually, you know, capturing what's going on around the training ground and it being captured by the club, so the club has complete control over what goes out. There's a lot more scope for personality of athletes coming out, and that's you know more and more and more important in terms of you know, driving reach and commercial value and all that mm. good stuff. I think that's, you know, I think that's absolutely right. And I think I'll make a bit of a prediction. I think we're not too far away from seeing rights holders become their own production companies in and of themselves. 
Um, and I don't mean athletes because athletes are obviously, you know, they lean into this very heavily already. It seems like every NBA or, you know, former NFL star and current NBA star has a, a production company. Um, but I think the, the, the actual rights holders will want to start taking control of the narrative and the output of content, um, not just for their owned and operated channels, but also for stuff that they can distribute and make money off of directly with the rights that they control outside of the um, outside of the league or, you know, the central sales uh, organization. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me at all to hear that, you know, City Football Group Productions or, or something like that uh, pops up. City at- Studios, it already exists. They've got 60 plus people who are all in a, you know, pumping out content but like uh, but to start to, to start to become a third-party content provider so actually going in and and, and tr- treating it as a full business and, pr- and 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 selling and producing and not just for owned and operated channels um as as its own as its own business line i i know that i know that city studios for example does does some of that but really ramping that up and i think you know it, it it'll be interesting to see as much as there's an arms race on uh, sponsorship to have an arms race suddenly come up on content and production and the creative capabilities to produce interesting content and then be able to sell it on from uh, from yeah, yeah. teams and rights holders perspective charlie what do you what do you think i think in the last few years you've really seen both uh, teams and leagues massively accelerate their investment in their content capabilities many of the premier league teams now have their own tv studios uh, Either at the TV, at the training ground, or at the stadium. Tottenham's new studio probably being one of the most recent examples. Uh, but we've also very much seen the emergence of some of the new leagues as well, who have had a, I guess you'd describe as a content-first mindset, really, from the moment that they launched. I think a really good example of that is Gerard Piquet's seven-a-side football league, uh, the Kings League in Spain. You know the way that they've distributed content on streaming platforms and how they've used influencers to massively grow reach. And done all done all of that very much aimed at a, a younger socially me, social media savvy audience. I, th- I think, to be honest, it's it's very impressive, and it's an audience that many rights holders would uh, absolutely love to have uh, as well. But I think whether we're talking about a, a Tottenham or a, a new league like a Kings League, it comes back to the fact that you need to have both a, a quality of content and a, a quantity of content if you're genuinely going to be viewed as a as a content business. Yeah. So as Andy used Hull uh, as an example, I'll use Wolves as an example. Shock. Shock, horror, my gosh, the world's about to end. So something like the Wolves TikTok channel, which is probably not something I knew that you've spent a lot of time on. Some of the content that they're putting out is absolutely brilliant. And it balances the, the fans' perspective with also the line that a club has to tread. And I think they're balancing it incredibly well. Like the one that they did, and uh, it's worth actually finding it, the, the cannonball example after the Man United-Wolves game, the first game of the season, when the Man United keeper basically just took out the Wolves uh, centre-forward. The piece of content that they put on the back of that connected with the fans so brilliantly, it was just phenomenal. And that is an example of having people in those positions who can create those stories and, and having that ability to be able to really understand what the feeling of the fans were i thought that was incredibly uh pretty powerful i think the other bit that i'd point out about this piece around being a content business is once you start to be a content business it opens you up to a whole different set of opportunities but also competitive issues as well so if you're a, a sports property that's got your own direct to consumer channel and you're charging 
599 6.99 a month to subscribe to this consumer channel all of a sudden the competition for that isn't necessarily other football clubs rugby clubs it's my netflix subscription it's my disney plus subscription our disney plus subscriptions going up by three or four pounds a month and we're going are we are we using this enough are we going to watch it but then if somebody a direct consumer channel is asking for five six ninety nine a month i'm like well why am i going to pay for that like am i going to cut the disney one or am i going to cut the the sports team one and if it's say something like a sports league one you've got to be a pretty committed fan to say i'm going to take this over star wars iron man things like that and i think that's something that a lot of sports organizations haven't yet necessarily worked through the implications of because you know that's a whole different business set of skill sets that are needed Exactly. How dare you leave Tangled off that list? Um, the next one is about AI, and we talked about uh, a lot about AI um, on, a, on a previous podcast recently. Um, so our prediction was AI will complement, not replace, content creators. And the snippet is the public launch of ChatGPT. We can talk about ChatGPT, of course. The public launch of ChatGPT looks set to make AI everyone's hot topic for 2023. That doesn't necessarily mean entire articles being written by AI, but allowing AI to have a run at a first draft. We're viewing the slightly less heralded release of DALI 2 in a similar way. Right now we see AI as the creative aid, not the artist. So fascinatingly, I had a conversation with somebody from a major studio um, about this recently, and they were saying that actually a lot of the AI that we as the public see is not yet out there, but it is terrifyingly advanced to the point that um, there are a lot of studios out there that don't bother with reshoots um, if a scene in a movie or a show um, hasn't been captured the way that they want during filming. They can actually generate it with AI to a satisfactory degree and then maybe just dub it over or something like that. Like that's how advanced it's become in the last, in the last 12 months. Obviously, ChatGPT was launched very shortly before we did the predictions last year. There's been a whole year. There's been a lot of tumult at OpenAI, uh, the company that owns or uh, runs ChatGPT. So a lot to dive into there. Charlie, how did we do on that one? Well, I think we did actually pretty well on this one um, because we're seeing that when it's done properly, it really is about complementing and supporting the content creators, not trying to replace them. Uh, but to carry on a theme for a second from the last conversation, I think the skill set of content creators is going to change. It's going to be less about how well you can use something like Adobe to create the content yourself, but how well you can come up with and indeed refine the right prompts in order to generate the content that you want. Yeah. I think a great example of this is how the Italian team Juventus uh, used AI tools like Midjourney and Runway uh, to create their fictionalist video this year. You know, you don't get a video like that where I think they've got something like 20 different logos. They're all full of symbolism, a lot of sort of uh, creativity going that just by putting create a fixture video into some AI software. It takes a lot of work. It takes iteration. It takes a lot of tweaking. But I certainly think that in instances like that, you see that the AI is genuinely being a complement uh, to the creator. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think we got that one pretty, pretty good. I'm 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 slightly less willing to put ourselves on the back for it on the basis 
we use the line that doesn't necessarily mean entire articles being written by AI. And we're discussing this on the week that the Sports Illustrated news dropped that they'd very much used AI to write entire <laughs> articles. And not only done that, but had fictional characters that had written it that were also generated by AI. So um, maybe, maybe we were slightly over-optimistic on the publisher's willingness to just, you know, shamelessly produce AI content. And, you know, I but I think Charlie's point and the broader point here is, yeah, that's been done, but if you actually look at those articles that were being produced, it wasn't high-quality stuff. The quality will obviously improve, and, you know, the stuff that ChatGPT can write is unbelievably high-quality compared to what we would have seen a year or two years ago from something similar. But I, I think Charlie's right. I think it's, you still need a human element within it. And you also, you know, this stuff needs fact checking, right? Like you need, you need to be confident that actually this stuff is true. So whilst I think ChatGPT has clearly been used this year and will be used next year as a, a great source for give me a first draft of this press release, give me a first draft of this article, um, you've got to check that stuff. You don't want to be that the lawyer that used ChatGPT and cited a case that never existed, um, <laughs> because you can be sure as hell in sports that there's many fans who are reading stuff, and if you get anything one goal wrong, they're gonna know. They're gonna remember that match, what color the ball was, what minute the substitutions were. So, um, yeah, human element and fact checking certainly needed still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that also comes back to uh, I think it was a few weeks ago we had Donny from Satisfy on the podcast. And he's talked a lot about the need to put guardrails around some of the AI capabilities, both from a safety and security perspective, but also from a, a content and context angle uh, as well. You know, there's some incredibly powerful tools out there, such as OpenAI and others. But the, I think the ability to put some proper structure and guidelines that reflect the feel, the tone, and, and indeed the style that you want is going to be incredibly important for any team or, or brand um, in the industry. You're going to want answers phrased in the right way you're going to want the information to be specific to your team and reflecting your partners and realistically you don't want something that has just been found out there on the internet Hmm. and i think one of the one of the interesting things is that i don't think any of us could have predicted quite how fast things have developed would develop and quite how powerful it would be so it's we're we're all getting to grips with it and trying to figure out exactly uh, how it works best on that though yeah and i think the other piece is also the, just the learning curve yeah or like the speed of how quickly it can be picked up so my 11 year old son came home from school the other day and found me playing around on a uh, an ai tool called blockade labs and within about five minutes he pretty well worked out how to the prompts to ask the things to actually push it on he was creating 3d worlds uh within minutes of basic from his imagination and what he was prompting it to be able to do that so quickly and easily and the um, the learning be so short and being able to adopt it so quickly, it was actually really, it was impressive to watch him go and do it. Uh, but also you think about, well, this just opens this up, this capability up to just thousands and thousands of people yep. uh, who will just try it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so get better, get better at prompts um, uh, and, and we probably need to get better at predictions. So the uh, next one uh, was memberships will be reimagined 
whilst NFTs might have underwhelmed so far, uh, remember this is back in uh, December of 2022 that we said this, whilst NFTs might have overwhelmed so far, that doesn't mean that there aren't important learnings about building community and what value looks like in a membership program. From talking to a number of clubs and leagues, we expect to see some serious rethinking of sports organizations' membership propositions, moving away from the traditional pen, certificate, and access to tickets, to more content and experience-driven programs, often involving a heavy dose of gamification. Andy, I have a sense, but tell us how we did on that one. Yeah, I mean, this is this has been kind of a, a bit of a passion area for me. I'm so convinced by this idea need for change from the digital membership you know way to to monetize the global fan base da, 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 da. and i mentioned to you guys before we we went on air i did a scan of a bunch of the premier league teams membership propositions and with some maybe notable exceptions broadly very much still that very much still it's very ticketing driven and again goods back to my point from content mm -hmm. historically everyone was thinking about match day everyone is to think about content and the digital stuff it's so very match day driven most memberships are still very focused around ticketing some have kind of got a tiered system where there's a ticketing membership and a you know a membership for people who aren't going to games but it's here's 30 pounds and you get a pen and a water bottle and a drawstring bag and it's pretty underwhelming stuff Liverpool are actually a good example of where they've maybe taken a bit of a step here in that they've got the Liverpool My Rewards program and you're rewarded for engaging with the club and doing various tasks. There's clearly a ticketing element to that and a merchandise, but this idea of my behaviour as a fan is acknowledged and rewarded. So I think we've seen steps towards that and actually two, two top six clubs I tried to do in the last couple of weeks and both said getting the membership proposition sorted is top of the agenda going into next season. Uh, this probably falls into what Charlie said around we've seen some progress, but it's not like it's going to change overnight. And memberships, you know, sports has quite often long sales cycles anyway. Memberships is the close to the longest on the basis that you can't rip out and change your membership proposition to fans every season, right? You probably you put something in, it's in there for five years. But yeah, we've seen baby steps, but it's it's baby steps rather than any huge change. But it's only going to take one or two rights holders really nailing this and getting success from this. And I think we'll see people copying that and, and adopting that best practice. So yeah, maybe I'll give myself a three out of ten, but I I want to come back to this next year and give myself a seven. It's are, are either of you members of uh, football clubs or or other sports organizations? Yes. Okay. Have you? Ha have you seen anything being done particularly differently or or kind of being enhanced? Of the ones that I'm a member of, no. But then the reason that I'm a member of is a is a fairly old school ticketing mm. uh, proposition. I want to get access to tickets because I want to go to the games. Um, all the other bits, mm, not really. They're a very minor element of why I've been a member. And I think there's a huge amount of thinking and development behind the scenes that has been done in the last 12 months. What we haven't necessarily seen is all of those things being released into the market yet. Mm. Um, and I think there's a lot of work that actually has been very strong around almost looking about the fundamentals of why does a, a football club, a sports league, why do they exist? Like, what is it that it's bringing? In many, many cases, it's about community and actually what the, 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 
the shared values of that community and what people are trying to connect with each other and their sense of belonging. And I think that's actually good because I think then it will mean that the membership programs are serving those needs much better. But then there's also an element of, you know, these are increasingly or already massively international uh, properties and most people are not going to be able to get to games. So actually, what does a proposition for those sorts of fans start to look like uh, as well? And how can you build community amongst those and therefore monetize that? That's where I think it starts to change. Um, because a lot of the drivers of why I was first a member of a football club, that was 20, 30 years ago. Mm. It was because it was your local team uh, and things like that. And I think that, that changes now. So on that point, I mentioned at the top of this prediction from last year about NFTs and the community that's been built around that. Those communities are typically existing on Discord. And so it's funny that we we wrote this prediction and then so 10 months on, Level will come in as a Spotsloft member company. I actually think working with us going into the next calendar year, we'll see a lot of rights holders setting up on Discord. And I think that's a really solid proposition for what will incentivize global fans to take a, a paid membership of £10 a year or whatever it is, right? If I need to do that to access the official Discord channel of the club that I support and the clubs can build those communities working with somebody like a level so that you know they're the go-to place to discuss this club and there's ways to do that right you can take over existing communities and other bits and pieces but that i think for me can really unlock this piece that i'm obsessed with with how do we monetize a global fan base how do we charge everyone in brazil five pounds a year type thing why are we charging only people in Brazil? That seems that seems a little bit a little bit obnoxious. The rest of the world as well, but Brazil's a priority market for for a number of reasons for a number of clubs. But I think that part that Andy just mentions there about uh, being able to build um, communities on channels like uh, Discord, I think actually was going to create some really interesting discussion within within a lot of organisations because the idea of where do I want to build this community? Do I want this community built within my app? my products or do i want to build on a third-party platform and everybody's going to say oh i want to own the data well you can own the data on third-party platforms that's possible uh you know and there's a lot of tools that enable you to go and do that but i think the other piece that actually is going to be really interesting is that if you start to try and build that community in your own platform how do you um actually keep up with the development like a football club is not a development house it's it's course core ability is not building community platforms a platform like a Discord or others, that's what they do as their core business. So actually working out when you leverage that expertise externally and when you try and do it internally, I think it's going to be a really interesting uh, dynamic over the next, let's go two years, give ourselves a bit more scope. Excellent. So on that one, I think we probably say that we we give ourselves a really good score for the future, but people just weren't ready to uh, ready to kick on this year. So... Moving on to the final one, for now, the metaverse is multiplayer online games that people actually play. And what we said about this is that in practical terms for 2023, sports teams and brands will likely follow the mantra of fish where the fish are. That should mean activations in online games where there are already large-scale audiences, such as Roblox, 200 million monthly active users. For those targeting 6 to 12-year-olds, or Fortnite activations for a slightly older audience. Fortnite has 250 million monthly active users. In many cases, the objectives will be to capture new fans with clubs well aware that kids often choose their sporting allegiances 
at an early age. Andy, we spoke to Eric about this uh, at Carta uh, at length about what the multiverse actually is. How do you feel we did on this one? Yeah, I, I feel pretty good about this, to be honest. The Carta guys have had a very strong year. They've got a leading sports property that they're hopefully announcing pretty soon amongst, along with a bunch of other deals and music that they've done with the likes of Twice and Blackpink. Part of the point around this was one, the importance of gaming as a means of reaching those younger fans. And I, I won't go on my rant from last time's podcast where I talked about the impending doom of sports and the threat of gaming. Um, I think part of the... Part of the point here was around, basically the point Charlie just made, right, around owned platforms and development of them versus fishing where the fish are going to the platforms with use. So there's still some sports rights holders who, during the Metaverse hype, built their own slightly weird platform and don't have much engagement on it and are determined to make it a thing. I think there's some of those have been better done by others. But ultimately, coming back to the thesis of why we looked to bring Carter in it's and it's, it's, it's similar to level with discord as well right like people are already on these platforms so if you go to them where they are to engage with them then you're going to get better better results from that and i think it's about looking at the product type and asking the question of does this make sense to sit within a club app or a club website oh actually we're not going to have a metaverse that sits within that let's do this on on fortnite so I mean, I think building on that, there's been quite a few examples of where organisations have tried to build their own uh, experiences and literally you just don't get people turning up. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of effort for very little uh, reward. I think the one of the interesting pieces, though, looking back at this trend is I think the actual use of the word metaverse seems to have died down a little bit. But I think what we've actually seen is then people coming up with more specific um uh, examples of what they're doing in in this case multiplayer gaming so a brand has just gone and done something in Fortnite, and, and they're saying i've done it in Fortnite. i've done it in roblox they're not saying i've done it in the metaverse which i think is quite interesting because i think they're getting much better and more concrete examples as a as a result um so you know spotify uh have, have just done some really interesting work and it, again it's it's often quite big brand led and i don't think that's going to slow down i think you're going to get more and more of these experiences be, being built and I think the the brands actually starting to develop really good experiences themselves. Uh, I think that's going to just carry on, and, and people will engage with that. Uh, there is a point, though, I think, at which those need to be kept authentic. They need to be kept genuinely engaging for people, and not just a marketing gimmick, but something that is genuinely value add to the to mm. the gaming experience. And then I think it works, and I think it will continue. I think we'll see more of it. Charlie, do, do do your boys play either Roblox or or Fortnite, or do they spend any time in those worlds? Yes, and you have no idea how many arguments we have to try and get them to come and eat their breakfast in the morning before going to school. Um, <laughs> but it is it is my it's a it's a social environment they're hanging out in. Yeah. So the follow on is: do they do they then also go to any of the worlds that their teams or rights holders have built and interact with those? And kind of what are their experiences with it? So I think looking back at some of the things like, for example, the one that uh, City did, I think it's interesting about actually how you make people aware of the fact that that experience exists. Mm. So my eldest, who's now eleven, where he didn't know that the City world had been built and being created until I said to him oh have you been to it he then went to it and was like hey this is really cool and he had a great time so I think a lot of it is actually how you publicize 
uh, and make make people aware. Mm. And a lot of that comes from word of mouth. You know, the people that they're playing the games with online. Hey, let's go and go into this environment. You know, let's go go over here. And I think that's that is a is a big part of it. Yeah, and you can't push if if, if the purpose of those activations is to convert jealous kids to be Man City fans. You can't just push it on the official club channels, right? Because they're not going to come across yeah. it. I think there's there's an element to which you can you can market it within the Roblox platform. I think, but then you probably need to think more broadly. What are the ways that these experiences are getting cut through? Um, get it in Match Magazine. Is Match Magazine still a thing? That's probably what I was reading when I was. <laughs> 16, 11 years ago. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention on this Metaverse one was we're holding ourselves to account for the last year's predictions but I also wanted to take a step back to 21's predictions and we did have a, a cheeky mention of Metaverse in that but one of the other pieces we pointed on was e-commerce becomes v-commerce which was basically about immersive shopping experiences and going back to this thing about Metaverse experiences you're on your own platform maybe around the shopping experience is where something makes more sense rather than trying to create a game being like okay well actually here's a here's a 3d shopping experience that exists within the club platform like maybe that makes sense but also we're going to see a lot of the sales of those items just happen on roblox right like roblox is is this is going to happen on roblox real merchandise hmm. that will be an interesting one right if there's you you're selling real merchandise through roblox the case for well do i want to try and replicate that on my own club platform be interested to see that unfold in the coming year yeah mm-hmm. and you know we had a really interesting conversation with um pia Scherner, the head of um digital and metaverse for bmw and she was she was making um i think exactly the point that you were making to to begin with andy about uh, they, they did a huge investment in building Hypnopolis, a BMW city in Fortnite. And, you know, she was saying, it, it, obviously there are integrations of the brand and stuff like that, but it has to be additive to the experience of the gamers in that environment. Um, and, and so they can, you know, spend time there, hang out with, you know, the people that they're playing with. They can, you know, design BMW cars, all, all, all the rest of that. Um, and I think she made a she made a really good point about the fact that um, a lot of the projects and you know Charlie you mentioned this a lot of the projects that are out there right now are just here's my brand and I expect you to interact with my brand because you are a fan but not additive to the actual experience and kind of uh, and kind of promoting it and that's um, that I was I was fascinated to hear from Eric uh, the head of Carta the um, Metaverse Gaming Studio who's a Sportsoft member company, about why Carta is so focused on building, um, understanding what the experience is for um, and what purpose it's supposed to serve for the gamers before they start getting the the, the brands involved. And I think um, from that perspective, um, I think people are starting to understand that and starting to get um, uh, get connected with it and that's first and foremost before you start getting into the okay let's actually start monetizing let's start selling digital jerseys that your avatar can wear or whatever else it might be right um, and I think my my expectation if you want to call it a prediction is that um, is that rights holders will become far smarter about this and start to really look at what is the additive value that I can offer gamers um, to either attract them or convert them, or give my fans who happen to be in this environment something that they can experience and play more and and participate in. 
and then revenue streams are going to come um, come flooding in from there. So we've covered 2023's predictions. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, there, there are some there are some back padding ones and some ones that we probably want to put our head under a pillow. Um, and there are some that we roll on to 2024 potentially and say, actually, we were just too early. So let's move to 2024 predictions. Um, we're going to have five or six of them published on uh, sportsloft.co, our website, and uh, also in our predictions newsletter, which Andy, I'm reliably informed, is in the process of writing as we speak. Um, this is, this is going to be a good test of whether Charlie's actually read the first draft or not. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How much of it was written by AI, Andy? Do you know what? I did contemplate. I was like, I can, if I, if I have a go at this, I can reference it in the AI section, but I think ultimately it ends up being a bit too generic. And mm. what I probably need to do is also feed in the previous year's predictions so that it's not repeating anything we've already said. There you go. So funnily enough, my wife did this. She she runs Future Book, which is the uh, uh, the publishing industries conference on the future of publishing, basically. Um, and she does the opening speech every year. And she had the uh, she had AI, she had ChatGPT write the opening to the speech. And so she, and obviously the theme of Future Book this year was AI because that's the theme of every tech focused conversation right and obviously in the publishing industry it's really significant um and she stood up and she i think the first couple of paragraphs she literally saw looks of horror in the audience as people were kind of listening to her going like what's happened to you like why do you why do you sound so weird and of course then she paused and said okay like this was this was written by ai but very much to that point you know it's it's not quite there yet so are we predicting andy that by the end of 2024 you will be able to write the 2025 um, Sportsloft Predictions newsletter entirely through the use of AI in your own voice, uh, <laughs> predicting the future 100% accurately. I really want to see AI nail the whole accent because I was recently on a Zoom call where it was taking notes and describing who'd said what. And uh, me and a guy called Jared, who is an American accent, where for some reason picked up as the same person. So somewhere to go as far as um, audio is concerned. Um, let's see. I think I've been trying, I've been making a very conscious effort to bring it into the everyday tasks that I'm doing. I think, as we've said, getting a starting point, maybe ahead of next year and throughout the year, we'll actually be inputting stuff into that or the outputs of conferences on our notes from conferences and stuff. So actually... What would be really interesting to do is take all the notes I've taken from the God knows how many hundreds of companies we've spoken with this year and actually use that as a basis and be like, okay, well, actually, Andy, over the last 12 months, you know, XYZ came up more in your notes than in previous years. That suggests a trend. Like, that would be really quite interesting. And if AI has been capturing my notes as I've been doing those meetings, they'll probably be more thorough than what I've written myself. So um, it gives it a better, a better data source to be writing articles off, which is, as we know, incredibly important. So what is what then is the prediction that you can share coming into the newsletter? All right. So these are very much still in development. One that I'm interested in exploring is the importance of personalities over elite performance. And so 
I reference in that how you know some of the most popular boxing matches this year have actually been YouTubers rather than professional boxers and you know the sidemen's charity football match how that got a, an audience filled out the Olympic Stadium so that's higher than the average attendance for all but one Premier League team so asked, asking the question of in a moment where low quality sport is being played basically by celebrities and gets a huge audience what are the learnings from that for rights holders asking how given that kind of interest is based on content and the personality that comes through in that content how rights holders can be discovering and leveraging the personalities of their athletes at all levels right but you know there are personalities throughout the sporting pyramid you don't need to be a premier league footballer to be component content so yeah that's 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 my sneak peek of one of the of one of the things we'll cover Excellent. Uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic till I die. Um, Charlie, what's your prediction? So one I'll pick out the ones that uh, uh, we've been talking about and actually builds upon the first one that we talked about in terms of data. I think that we're going to see sports organisations really capitalising on their ability to capture almost a unique level of consumer insights based upon people's willingness to share data that probably they wouldn't share with uh, any other organisation in their life. Uh, both of a, a quantity and a depth of it. And I think that's going to be how teams capitalise that on that, I think is going to be really interesting over the next 12 months. And so uh, that's the that's the one I'll pick from from the list we've been looking at. It's going to be fascinating, isn't it? Especially with especially with the amount of, of private equity money and sort of smart money that continues to pour into sports uh, and kind of the ancillary businesses that a lot of these people are invested in. Uh, I think you're you're absolutely right. There is there is going to be a moment or a tipping point in one, two, three, four different verticals where people say we're going to invest in this and we're going to figure out how we best use the passion of the fan base in order to really build this into a business. Um, and you know we've touched on a few of those um, opportunities, uh, and uh, and that's that's tremendously exciting. Right. Any parting thoughts, gentlemen, before we wrap up 2023 and, uh, and, and launch into 2024, hoping that our predictions are going to hold up better than they did this year? All I would say is I love, there's naturally come up in conversation anyway. This is usually a pretty well performing piece of content, but love for people who've made it to the end of the podcast to, to get in touch, give us their perspective on which stuff we predicted well, what's the stuff we missed, what we should be thinking for this year. As as usual, we'll, we'll draw on the insights of the member companies and investors and others. Um, the learning for this comes through not our reading of stuff, it's through the conversations we have. So encouraging more of them with rights holders and investors and startups so that we can continue to put together hopefully interesting content like this. Excellent. So as Andy says to the listeners who uh, have made it to the end of this podcast, uh, thank you very much for sticking with us, first of all. Secondly, uh, do let us know what you think about our predictions uh, uh, by following us and commenting at Sportsoft HQ. Uh, you can get the, ne- the newsletter that we will be sending out by going to, at sportsoft, uh, to sportsoft.co and signing up to the newsletter. Um, and as always, please do make sure to give us a rating and uh, comment or uh, subscription wherever you get your podcasts. All that remains is to say a big thank you to my partners in crime for the podcast, the Sports Off podcast this year. Charlie, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you, Yannick. 
Andy, thank you as well. We look forward to many more Wolves and Hull favorite moments in 2024. <laughs> thank you, Yanni, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you all very much for listening, and we'll see you next time in the Sports Loft. Goodbye. Goodbye.